0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, a story from Kate Chopin, A Respectable Woman. Sometimes, marriage can be challenged by an outsider, and it provides a true test of love. In today's story, A Respectable Woman by Kate Chopin, that's exactly what happens. And now, A Respectable Woman by Kate Chopin. Mrs. Baroda was a little provoked to learn that her husband expected his friend, Gouvernal up to spend a week or two on the plantation. They had entertained a good deal during the winter. Much of the time had also been passed in New Orleans in various forms of mild dissipation. She was now looking forward to a period of unbroken rest and undisturbed tête-à-tête with her husband, when he informed her that gouvernal was coming up to stay a week or two. This was a man she had heard much of, but never seen. He had been her husband's college friend, was now a journalist, and in no sense a society man or a man about town, which were, perhaps, some of the reasons she had never met him. But she had unconsciously formed an image of him in her mind. She pictured him tall, slim, cynical, with eyeglasses, and his hands in his pockets, and she did not like him. Gouvernal was slim enough, but he wasn't very tall nor very cynical, neither did he wear eyeglasses, nor carry his hands in his pockets, and she rather liked him when he first presented himself. But why she liked him she could not explain satisfactorily to herself when she partly attempted to do so. She could discover in him none of those brilliant and promising traits which Gaston, her husband, had often assured her that he possessed. On the contrary, he sat rather mute and receptive before her chatty eagerness to make him feel at home and in face of Gaston's frank and wordy hospitality. His manner was as courteous toward her as the most exacting woman could require, but he made no direct appeal to her approval or even esteem. Once settled at the plantation, he seemed to like to sit upon the wide portico in the shade of one of the big Corinthian pillars, smoking his cigar lazily and listening attentively to Gaston's experience as a sugar-planter. "'This is what I call living,' he would utter with deep satisfaction, as the air that swept across the sugar-field caressed him with its warm and scented velvety touch. It pleased him also to get on familiar terms with the big dogs that came about him, rubbing themselves sociably against his legs. He did not care to fish, and displayed no eagerness to go out and kill Grossbacks when Gaston proposed doing so. Governel's personality puzzled Mrs. Baroda, but she liked him. Indeed, he was a lovable, inoffensive fellow. After a few days, when she could understand him no better than at first, she gave over being puzzled and remained piqued. In this mood she left her husband and her guest, for the most part, alone together. Then finding that Gouvernault took no matter of exception to her action, she imposed her society upon him, accompanying him in his idle strolls to the mill and walks along the Bature. She persistently sought to penetrate the reserve in which he had unconsciously enveloped himself. "'When is he going, your friend?' she one day asked her husband. "'For my part, he tires me frightfully.' Uh, "'Not for a week yet, dear. I can't understand. He gives you no trouble.' "'No. I should like him better if he did, if he were more like the others, and I had to plan somewhat for his comfort and enjoyment.' Gaston took his wife's pretty face between his hands and looked tenderly and laughingly into her troubled eyes. They were making a bit of toilet sociably together in Mrs. Baroda's dressing-room. "'You are full of surprises, Ma Belle he said to her. Even I can never count upon how you are going to act under given conditions. He kissed her and turned to fasten his cravat before the mirror. Here you are, he went on, taking poor Gouvernail seriously and making a commotion over him, the last thing he would desire or expect. Commotion? she hotly resented. Nonsense! How can you say such a thing? Commotion indeed! But, you know you said he was clever. And so he is. But the poor fellow is run down by overwork right now. That's why I asked him here to take a rest. You used to say he was a man of ideas, she retorted, unconciliated. I expected him to be interesting, at least. I'm going to the city in the morning to have my spring gowns fitted. Let me know when Mr. Gouvernal is gone. I shall be at my Aunt Octavia's. That night she went and sat alone upon a bench that stood beneath a live oak tree at the edge of the gravel walk. She had never known her thoughts or her intentions to be so confused. She could gather nothing from them but the feeling of distinct necessity to quit her home in the morning. Mrs. Baroda heard footsteps crunching the gravel, but could discern in the darkness only the approaching red point of a lighted cigar. She knew it was Gubernal, for her husband did not smoke she hoped to remain unnoticed, but her white gown revealed her to him. He threw away his cigar and seated himself upon the bench beside her, without a suspicion that she might object to his presence. "'Your husband told me to bring this to you, Mrs. Baroda,' he said, handing her a filmy white scarf with which she sometimes enveloped her head and shoulders. She accepted the scarf from him with a murmur of thanks, and let it lie in her lap. He made some commonplace observation upon the baneful effect of the night air at the season. Then, as his gaze reached out into the darkness, he murmured, half to himself, "'Night of south winds, night of the large few stars, still nodding night.' She made no reply to this apostrophe to the night, which, indeed, was not addressed to her. Gouvernail was in no sense a different man— for he was not a self-conscious one. His periods of reserve were not constitutional, but the result of moods. Sitting there beside Mrs. Baroda, his silence melted for the time. He talked freely and intimately in a low, hesitating drawl that was not unpleasant to hear. He talked of the old college days when he and Gaston had been a good deal to each other, of the days of keen and blind ambitions and large intentions, Now there was left with him, at least, a philosophic acquiescence to the existing order, only a desire to be permitted to exist with now and then a little whiff of genuine life, such as he was breathing now. Her mind only vaguely grasped what he was saying. Her physical being was for the moment predominant. She was not thinking of his words, only drinking in the tones of his voice. She wanted to reach out her hand in the darkness and touch him with the sensitive tips of her fingers upon the face or the lips. She wanted to draw close to him and whisper against his cheek. She did not care what, as she might have done, if she had not been a respectable woman. The stronger the impulse grew to bring herself near him, the further, in fact, did she draw away from him. As soon as she could do so without an appearance of too great rudeness, she rose and left him there alone. Before she reached the house, Gouvernal had lighted a fresh cigar and ended his apostrophe to the night. Mrs. Baroda was greatly tempted that night to tell her husband, who was also her friend, of this folly that had seized her. But she did not yield to the temptation. Beside being a respectable woman, she was a very sensible one, and she knew there are some battles in life which a human being must fight alone. When Gaston arose in the morning— his wife had already departed. She had taken an early morning train to the city. She did not return till Gouvernal was gone from under her roof. There was some talk of having him back during the summer that followed. That is, Gaston greatly desired it. But this desire yielded to his wife's strenuous opposition. However, before the year ended, she proposed, wholly from herself, to have Gouvernault visit them again. Her husband was surprised and delighted with the suggestion coming from her. "'I am glad, Cher Ami, to know that you have finally overcome your dislike for him. Truly he did not deserve it.' "'Oh,' she told him, laughingly, after pressing a long, tender kiss upon his lips, "'I have overcome everything, you will see. This time I shall be very nice to him.' An interesting side note on Kate Chopin before we begin our second story. She was heavily influenced by Maupassant. She once wrote, I read his stories and marveled at them. Here was life, not fiction, for where were the plots? The old-fashioned mechanism and stage-trapping that in a vague, unthinkable way I had fancied were essential to the art of story-making. Here was a man who had escaped from tradition and authority had entered into himself and looked out upon life through his own being and with his own eyes, and who, in a direct and simple way, told us what he saw. Before we begin the second story, a message from our sponsors. Please enjoy a message from our sponsors. Our second story, A Wizard from Gettysburg, by Kate Chopin. It was one afternoon in April, not long ago, only the other day and the shadows had already begun to lengthen. Bertrand de Delmande, a fine, bright-looking boy of fourteen years, fifteen, perhaps, was mounted, and riding along a pleasant country road upon a little Creole pony, such as boys in Louisiana usually ride when they have nothing better at hand. He had hunted and carried his gun before him. It is unpleasant to state that Bertrand was not so depressed as he should have been in view of recent events that had come about. Within the past week he had been recalled from the college of Grand Couteau to his home, the Bonacule Plantation. He had found his father and his grandmother depressed over money matters, awaiting certain legal developments that might result in his permanent withdrawal from school. That very day, directly after the early dinner, the two had driven to town on this very business, to be absent till the late afternoon. Bertrand, then, had saddled Picayuni and gone for a long jaunt, such as his heart delighted in. He was returning now, and had approached the beginning of the great tangled Cherokee hedge that marked the boundary line of Bonacule, and that twinkled with multiple white roses. The pony started suddenly and violently at something there at the turn of the road, and just under the hedge it looked like a bundle of rags at first, but it was a tramp seated upon a broad, flat stone." Bertrand had no maudlin consideration for tramps as a species. He had only that morning driven from the place one who was making himself unpleasant at the kitchen window. But this tramp was old and feeble. His beard was long and as white as new-gin cotton. He was engaged in stanching a wound in his bare heel with a fistful of matted grass. "'What's wrong, old man?' asked the boy, kindly. The tramp looked up at him with a bewildered glance but did not answer. "'Well,' thought Bertrand, "'since it's decided that I'm to be a physician some day, I can't begin to practice too early.' He dismounted and examined the injured foot. He had an ugly gash. Bertrand acted mostly from impulse. Fortunately, his impulses were not bad ones. So nimbly and as quickly as he could manage it, he had the old man astride Picayuni whilst he himself was leading the pony down the narrow lane. The dark green hedge towered like a high and solid wall on one side. On the other was a broad, open field, where here and there appeared the flash and gleam of uplifted, polished hose that workers were plying between the even rows of cotton and tender corn. "'This is the state of Louisiana,' uttered the tramp, quaveringly. "'Yes, this is Louisiana,' returned Bertrand cheerily. Yes, I know it is. I've been in all of them since Gettysburg. Sometimes it was too hot, sometimes it was too cold, and with that bullet in my head. You don't remember? No. You don't remember Gettysburg? Well, no, not vividly, laughed Bertrand. Is it a hospital? It isn't a factory, is it? The man questioned. "'Where are we going? Why, no, it's the Delmonde Plantation, Bonacule, and here we are. Wait, I'll open the gate.' This singular group entered the yard from the rear, and not far from the house. A big black woman, who sat just without a cabin door, picking a pile of rusty-looking moss, called out at the sight of them. "'What's that you bringing in this yard, boy? Top that hoss. She received no reply. Bertrand, indeed, "'took no notice of her inquiry. "'For a boy what goes to school like you does, "'where's your sense?' she went on, "'with a fine show of indignation, "'then muttering to herself, "'Ma'am Bertrand and Ma saint "'ain't going to stand that. "'I knows they ain't. "'If he ain't done, "'sat him on the gallery, plump down on his pa's rockin' cheer. "'Which the boy had done, "'seated the tramp in a pleasant corner of the veranda "'while he went in search of bandages for his wound.' The servant showed high disapproval. The housemaid following Bertrand into his grandmother's room, whither he had carried his investigations. "'What you tearing your grandma's closet to pieces with that way, boy?' she complained in her high soprano. "'I'm looking for bandages.' "'Then why you don't ask for bandages and left your grandma's closet alone? You want to listen to me. You gwine to get shed of that tramp set next to the dining room when the silver goes missing?' "'Tain't you that gonna get the blame. "'It's me.' "'The silver? "'Nonsense. "'Cindy, the man's wounded. and "'Can't you see he's out of his head?' "'No more out of his head than I is. "'Tain't me want to trust on with the storeroom key "'if he's out in his head,' she concluded with a disdainful shrug. But Bertrand's protege proved so unapproachable in his long-worn rags that the boy concluded to leave him unmolested till his father's return." And then ask permission to turn the forlorn creature into the bathhouse and array him afterward in clean, fresh garments. So there the old tramp sat in the veranda corner, stolidly content, when St. Ange del Monde and his mother returned from town. St. Ange was a dark, slender man of middle age with a sensitive face and a plentiful sprinkle of gray in his thick black hair. His mother, a portly woman, and an active one for her sixty-five years. They were evidently in a despondent mood. Perhaps it was for the cheer of her sweet presence that they had brought with them from town a little girl, the child of Madame Delmande's only daughter, who was married and lived there. Madame Delmande and her son were astonished to find so uninviting an intruder in possession. But a few earnest words from Bertrand reassured them and partly reconciled them to the man's presence. And it was with wholly indifferent though not unkindly glances that they passed by him when they entered. On any large plantation there are always nooks and corners where, for a night or more, even such a man as this tramp may be tolerated and given shelter. When Bertrand went to bed that night, he lay long awake thinking of the man and of what he had heard from his lips in the hushed starlight. The boy had heard of the awfulness of Gettysburg, till it was like something he could feel and quiver at. ON THAT FIELD OF BATTLE THIS MAN HAD RECEIVED A NEW AND TRAGIC BIRTH, FOR ALL HIS EXISTENCE THAT WENT BEFORE WAS A BLANK TO HIM. THERE, IN THE BLACK DESOLATION OF WAR, HE WAS BORN AGAIN, WITHOUT FRIENDS OR KINDRED, WITHOUT EVEN A NAME HE COULD KNOW WAS HIS OWN. THEN HE HAD GONE FORTH A WANDERER, LIVING MORE THAN HALF THE TIME IN HOSPITALS, toiling WHEN HE COULD, STARVING WHEN HE HAD TO. Strangely enough, he had addressed Bertrand as St. Ange, not once, but every time he had spoken to him. The boy wondered at this. Was it because he had heard Madame Delmonde address her son by that name, and fancied it? So this nameless wanderer had drifted far down to the plantation of Bonacule, and at last found a human hand stretched out to him in kindness. When the family assembled at breakfast on the following morning— the tramp was already settled in the chair, and in the corner which Bertrand's indulgence had made familiar to him. If he had turned partly around, he would have faced the flower-garden, with its graveled walks and trim parterres, where a tangle of color and perfume were holding high revelry this April morning. But he liked better to gaze into the backyard, where there was always movement, men and women coming and going, bearing implements of work, Little negroes in scanty garments, darting here and there, and kicking up the dust in their exuberance. Madame Delmonde could just catch a glimpse of him through the long window that opened to the floor, and near which he sat. Mr. Del Monde had spoken to the man pleasantly, but he and his mother were wholly absorbed by their troubles, and talked constantly of that, while Bertrand went back and forth ministering to the old man's wants. The boy knew that the servants would have done the office with ill grace, and he chose to be cup-bearer himself to the unfortunate creature for whose presence he alone was responsible. Once, when Bertrand went out to him with a second cup of coffee, steaming and fragrant, the old man whispered, "'What are they saying in there?' pointing over his shoulder to the dining-room. "'Oh, money troubles that will force us to economize for a while,' answered the boy. "'What father and mammaire feel worst about "'is that I shall have to leave college now. "'No, no. "'St. Ange must go to school. "'The war is over. "'The war is over. "'St. Ange and Florentine must go to school.' "'But if there's no money,' the boy insisted, "'smiling like one who humors the vagaries of a child. "'Money,' murmured the tramp. "'The war is over. "'Money. "'Money.' His sleepy gaze had swept across the yard into the thick of the orchard beyond, and rested there. Suddenly he pushed aside the light table that had been set before him, and rose, clutching Bertrand's arm. "'Saint-Alms, you must go to school,' he whispered. "'The wall is over,' looking furtively around. "'Come. Don't let them hear you. Don't let the negroes see us. "'Get a spade.' the little spade that Buck Williams was digging his cistern with. Still clutching the boy, he dragged him down the steps as he said this, and traversed the yard with long, limping strides, himself leading the way. From under a shed where such things were to be found, Bertrand selected a spade, since the tramp's whim demanded that he should, and together they entered the orchard. The grass was thick and tufted here, and wet with the morning dew. In long lines, forming pleasant avenues between, were peach trees growing, and pear, and apple, and plum. Close against the fence was the pomegranate hedge, with its waxen blossoms, brick-red. Far down in the center of one orchard stood a huge pecan tree, twice the size of any other that was there, seeming to rule like an old-time king. Here Bertrand and his guide stopped, the tramp had not once hesitated in his movement since grasping the arm of his young companion on the veranda. Now he went and leaned his back against the pecan tree, where there was a deep knot, and looking steadily before him, he took ten paces forward. Turning sharply to the right, he made five additional paces, then pointing his finger downward, and looking at Bertrand, he commanded. "'There, dig. I'd do it myself, but for my wounded foot.' for I've turned many a spade of earth since Gettysburg. Dig, St. Ange, dig. The war is over. You must go to school. Is there a boy of fifteen under the sun who would not have dug, even knowing he was following the insane dictates of a demented man? Bertrand entered with all the zest of his years and his spirit into the curious adventure, and he dug and dug, throwing great spadefuls of the rich fragrant earth from side to side. The tramp, with body bent, and fingers like claws clasping his bony knees, stood watching with eager eyes that never unfastened their steady gaze from the boy's rhythmic motions. "'That's it,' he muttered at intervals. "'Dig! Dig, boy! The wall's over! You must go to school, St. Ange. "'Deep down in the earth,' too deep for any ordinary turning of the soil with spade or plow to have reached it, was a box. It was of tin, apparently, something larger than a cigar box, and bound round and round with twine, rotted now, and eaten away in places. The tramp showed no surprise at seeing it there. He simply knelt upon the ground and lifted it from its long resting place. Bertrand had let the spade fall from his hands and was quivering with the awe of the thing he saw. Who could this wizard be that had come to him in the guise of a tramp, that walked in cabalistic paces upon his own father's ground, and pointed his finger like a divining rod to the spot where boxes, maybe treasures, lay? It was like a page from a wonder-book. And walking behind this white-haired old man, who was again leading the way, something of a childish superstition crept back into Bertrand's heart. It was the same feeling with which he had often sat long ago in the weird firelight of some negro's cabin, listening to tales of witches who came in the night to work uncanny spells at their will. Madame Del Monde had never abandoned the custom of washing her own silver and dainty china. She sat, when the breakfast was over, with a pail of warm suds before her that Cindy had brought to her, with an abundance of soft linen cloths. Her little granddaughter stood beside her playing, as babies will, with the bright spoons and forks, "'and ranging them in rows on the polished mahogany. "'St. As was at the window making entries in a notebook, frowning gloomily as he did so. "'The group in the dining-room were so employed "'when the old tramp came staggering in, "'Bertrand close behind him. "'He went and stood at the foot of the table, "'opposite to where Madame Delmande sat, "'and let fall the box upon it. "'The thing in falling shattered.' AND FROM ITS BURSTING SIDES GOLD CAME, CLICKING, SPINNING, GLIDING, SOME OF IT LIKE OIL, ROLLING ALONG THE TABLE AND OFF IT TO THE FLOOR, BUT HEAPED UP THE BULK OF IT BEFORE THE TRAMP. HE CALLED OUT, PLUNGING HIS OLD HAND IN THE THICK OF IT. WHO SAYS SAINT ANGE SHALL NOT GO TO SCHOOL? THE war's IS OVER. HERE'S MONEY. SAINT ANGE, MY BOY, TURNING TO Bertrand AND SPEAKING WITH QUICK AUTHORITY. "'Tell Buck Williams to hitch Black Bess to the buggy, "'and go bring Judge Parkerson here. "'Judge Parkerson, indeed, "'who had been dead for twenty years and more. "'Tell him that that and the hand that was not in the gold "'went up to the withered forehead. "'That Bertrand Delmonde needs him.' "'Madame Delmonde, at sight of the man with his box and his gold, "'had given a sharp cry, "'such as might follow the plunge of a knife. "'She lay now in her son's arms, panting hoarsely. "'Your father, St. Anne's, "'come back from the dead. "'Your father.' "'Be calm, mother,' the man implored. "'You had such sure proof of his death "'in that terrible battle. "'This may not be he.' "'I know him. "'I know your father.' "'My son!' And disengaging herself from the arms that held her, she dragged herself as a wounded serpent might to where the old man stood." His hand was still in the gold, and on his face was yet the flush which had come there when he shouted out the name Bertrand Delmande, "'Husband!' she gasped. "'Do you know me? Your wife?' The little girl was playing gleefully with the yellow coins. Bertrand stood, pulseless almost, like a young acteon cut in marble. When the old man had looked long to the woman's imploring face, he made a courtly bow. "'Madam?' he said. An old soldier, wounded on the field of Gettysburg, craves for himself and his two little children. Your kind hospitality. Thanks for joining us for A Wizard from Gettysburg by Kate Chopin. We hope you enjoyed this show, and if you did, please do send us a review for 1001 Greatest Love Stories. We would appreciate that very much. We do our best at One Thousand One Greatest Love Stories to bring you stories from some of the great female authors as well as male authors who have given us great classic stories in years past. If you've been thinking about supporting One Thousand One Stories Network, please check us out at Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash One Thousand One Stories Network, and that's where our most faithful supporters go to pledge anywhere from a dollar to five dollars a month to keep our show going forward. I know there are demands from every direction to help support and finance things these days, but I think supporting classic literature in the style that we bring it is definitely worth supporting, and we ask you for yours. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new story or stories here at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.